0: Hey everybody, this is Pete Peterson. You're listening to the Finns Revolution Podcast. Uh, I'm Pete Peterson. I am here today with Shajay Clark. Hello! And, uh, so we have now finished the entirety of The Fiddler's Gun, the first book in the *Finn's Revolution series. And, uh, I just thought it would be fun to sit down with Shajay again, who, uh, like I said last time in our other, like, interview kind of, uh, episode, Shajay has just recently read the books for the first time. And, uh, so I was really interested in, you know, what questions she might have, um, Uh, What frustrations she might have. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I kind of thought it would be an interesting experiment Just to talk to her at this point in the story and maybe answer some questions and see where we get. So Shajay What do you think?
1: Well, I am really excited to be here at the end of the first book because it was difficult at the first interview that we had to not talk about the rest of the book and to just stop at the end of uh, of book one because there's so much that happens, so I'm I'm excited. To, so we to get can actually talk
0: spoilers now. Yes, so we, we should can. probably say that there will be spoilers for book one. Read so. the book first, read or book listen first. to the
1: podcast. Yes, both are wondrous experiences. Um. Yeah. So I'm really excited. One of the things I wanted to ask last time that I thought was too overarching to get into just at the end of book one was the character of Finn Button. She's a really interesting, unique character. I don't know that I've read anybody like her before and i love that and uh, i wanted to ask what where you got the idea for her where did she come from uh
0: that's a good question well um i would say that at the time that i started writing the book i was working at a place called the florida sheriff's boys ranch Mm. um it's a little place out in the country in florida that is a group home for at-risk youth teenage boys And so, you know, the mantra that you often hear in writing circles is write what you know. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, what I knew was orphans and teenagers with problems Mm -hmm. and behavioral issues. Uh, And so that was immediately what I wanted to start writing about, because I I was in the middle of kind of dealing with a lot of that stuff every day. But, you know, rather than writing about a young boy, I thought it would be more interesting to write about a young girl. Um, I mean, we're all fans of the underdog And uh, I feel like there's not enough stories that come out of that time period about young women. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the same time, there was just like, uh, as someone who loves like pirate adventures and, you know, sort of American frontier sort of adventure stuff. uh, Again, it just, it felt more interesting if that was a young woman for once instead of a young boy. So that's kind of where it came from. Uh, So I guess in some respects, it was just out of necessity. I needed to write what I knew. And even if I didn't know young women, I certainly knew teenagers. And I would argue that there's not a great deal of difference between teenage boys and girls. At yeah. least not as much as people often assume. Mm-hmm. So that's where she came from.
1: That's fantastic. That's one of the things that I and I know a lot of people that have read the book really appreciated. Is that there's not this huge difference. There, do, It doesn't seem um, like you're trying to force the character... To quote-unquote be a girl right right because it's just a person who's going through these things yeah um, and it seems very naturally just who she is
0: yeah well it's interesting a lot i was actually surprised after i finished the book a lot of people would ask me how in the world do you write uh a a woman so well and i was like i don't know i just kind of write a person (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. i I never thought of her and i didn't feel the need to treat her as a woman you know, right. obviously, there are points in the story where you deal with certain things in different ways, but ultimately, she's just a complicated character, and that is going to ring true no matter what her gender is, absolutely. if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It does. So, in our first interview, you said at one point that you immediately knew that you wanted to write about an orphan. Is that connected to what yeah. you just said about the boys' ranch?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like It was just write what you know, and I was like, every day, I was going to work, and I was encountering just great stories and great characters, and... You know, there are a number mm. of characters in this book that came directly out of the experience. Like Really? Like who? Well, so, uh, near the end of the book, you run into Armand Defane, mm-hmm. which is a creepy uh, character with a French accent. And, you know, he's missing his fingers on one of his hands, and he's, his ears have been cut off, and he's got scars and all this. He's mostly toothless. He's just this hor- horribly gnarled person. And while I was at the boys' ranch, there was a kid that... Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say his name, but he had an he had a grandfather whose name was uh, Dorfus Fane.
1: No way. And
0: he used to tell me stories about his grandfather who was missing fingers and missing his ears and had, like, had one eye or something, and he was a Cajun guy, and you could hardly understand what he said, and he just had this crazy story. And I just always thought, one of these days, that guy's going in a book. <laughs> and so if you look at the original drafts of The Fiddler's Gun, Armand's name is Dorfus Fane. And you know, in revisions, it became really clear that that name is so comical sounding mm. that it didn't it didn't ring true with uh, the really dark character that right, Armand turns that into. Is. Uh, which is why I, I made the the turn to, to Armand. But uh, yeah, so like those stories were happening to me all the time. Um, and just, you know, the fist fights and all this kind of stuff. So when I sat down to write, I think that's what naturally came out. And I will also say that the early drafts of the book dwelt a lot more in that space. Mm. In Finn's youth, when there were lots of fist fights and, you know, hijinks with the kids at the orphanage, a lot, a lot more of that stuff was there early on. And it just became aware that I think that's ground that's been tread so many times in so many books that it just wasn't terribly interesting or original. Mm. And so I was really interested in moving the story forward to the point where she could get on the ship, because that's where I think um, the story really takes off on its own right. in a lot of ways. So uh, a lot of that got ejected.
1: But I love that you laid the groundwork, the the amount that you did right. within that, because her fist fights and her climbing up the tower, and you really set the stage for when, unlike a lot of books that I read kind of in the same vein mm-hmm. um, not that it's in the same vein as anything just it's, right. it's similar to other things but not quite like anything else um often it it feels un- unbelievable that the person is suddenly doing all of these right. things um and i found that with finn that was very believable like her scurrying up su- climbing all over the rigging and and winning yeah. fist fights with with Full-grown right. pirate men, you know. I guess they're not pirates when you first start starts fighting them, but sailors. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, felt very believable because of the groundwork that you laid there. So uh,
0: right, so right. I felt like it. Like I've always been a fan of stories that are a slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, these days in books, movies, most uh, entertainment medium that we interact with, um, there's this. Sense that you know, like in the first five to 10 minutes of the story, it's got to be off and running. Right. And uh, man, I just, I kind of reject that idea. Like my favorite books are really slow burn books, mm. you know, and I think those payoffs are so much more satisfying. Um, and so I was really committed to writing a story that felt a little old fashioned, which, you know, is going to be off putting to some people, and I'm okay with that. But, uh, you know, so structurally, that means that essentially the first half of Fiddler's Gun. Is really the first act of the Finn's Revolution story. Right. Meaning it takes her that long to get to her inciting incident. Right. Um, But then, you know, within the context of The Fiddler's Gun as a book, you know, that doesn't, you can't get halfway through the book before the story starts. So you have to have this whole other sort of inciting incident stuff. Right. Which is her, you know, encountering Bartimaeus for the first time and starting off on this kind of new life at the orphanage. So anyway, it presented a whole lot of structural problems, I guess, but. Yeah, I just I wanted a slow burn.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that you brought up Armand because uh, he is such an intriguing character um, and connects to one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about thematically um, because one of the things that I found really intriguing about Finn and her struggle and kind of one of the things that she goes through in the book is this tension between her love of adventure and kind of the... Love of violence that she starts to grow right. into, um, and and sees in right. herself. So, tell me more about that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that's the whole the theme of the entire story, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the fiddler's gun. <laughs> you know, it's about the choice between the creation of music or the creation of death.
2: Right.
0: Uh, and so, as Finn, you know, takes off on this journey and is discovering these things about what she loves, uh, there's this dark side of her that enjoys adventure and enjoys violence and killing and all this kind of stuff and she dislikes that in herself um but i felt the need to externalize that in another character to mm-hmm. really reflect to her what she was in danger of becoming right and that is hinted at in fiddler's gun and it becomes fully fleshed out and fiddler's green but that's the function that armand plays um in the story as he is uh he is the thing she is in danger of becoming. Right. You know, and I did. And initially you might think, well, you know, you have on one side Bartimaeus who has learned to create beauty rather than destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, you, you might think that, that his foil would be uh, Creech. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't want that to be the case. Like, uh, Creech, I think, is just kind of like wholly ho- and simply just vile. <laughs> like, he's not terribly complicated, I don't think. Right. Uh, and the, so the foil to Bartimaeus needed to be somebody who was much more nuanced and complicated in what they had grown into over the years. Right. And so I kind of use our Bartimaeus and and Armand as foils for one another. And then Crete is kind of the one that drives them apart onto their different trajectories, separate if that paths. makes sense. Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because that's one of the things that's so intriguing about Armand is that as vile and as, as he is, you consistently can see why he makes the choices that- right. h- his choices make sense, and, the, th- and right. the advice that he gives makes sense, and you right. can understand why Right, she- which I
0: think is key to, like, I don't like stories with villains, typically. Mm. Um, you know, you can certainly argue that the Fiddler's Gun has a villain. You know, I think it's certainly true, but uh, in the case of Fiddler's Green, which we haven't gotten to yet, I would argue that there's not a villain. Mm. Uh, and uh, part of the, what I mean by that is I think a good antagonist, like there's villains and then there's antagonists, right? right? So a villain is somebody that's just there to serve the purpose of being evil. Right. You know, whereas <laughs> an antagonist, you know, works against the protagonist and needs to be a complicated character on their own. Armand's not a villain. Yeah. What I mean by that is that he is the, in his own mind, he's the hero of his own story. Right. Like he doesn't see himself as doing. Evil thing necessarily. He's doing what it takes him to, sur- to survive. Right. right. So he's learned to operate in the world in this way, and he's developed these systems of hatreds and you know you know uh, vindications and all this kind of stuff that make him who he is. But he's not out to be evil. Right. You know. So.
1: But at the same time, he kind of guides Finn along that same right. path. Right. Right. And she continuously sees the logic in the decisions that he guides her toward and yeah, often capitulates to those. Right,
0: and, you know, it's like, you know, a lot of, I think, I'm always frustrated when people say, hey, I've read The Fiddler's Gun, it was really good. I was like, well, did you read Fiddler's Green? They're like, oh, no, not yet. I'm like, well, what? what? <laughs> because, like, Fiddler's Gun ends on a note that is not... Like, if anybody is satisfied by the end of Fiddler's Gun, that worries me. Right. Because Finn has not made good decisions. You know, I think it comes to a satisfying conclusion (laughs) in a lot of ways. But uh, it ends with Finn having chosen the worst thing rather Mm -hmm. than the best thing. Mm -hmm. Right? And uh, so if people aren't recognizing, or if people are coming away from the story thinking, oh, that's what I'm to take away... From this book about how the world operates and how I should behave in it, then that's troubling. That's right? concerning. <laughs> that's very troubling. But you know, at the same time, you know, I chose to end the book there partially because you know I realized at that point in the writing that that part of the story had reached a satisfying kind of conclusion. Mm-hmm. And what was ahead of it was at least that much more,
2: right and
0: I wasn't interested in writing uh, you know a seven hundred page book.
1: I was going to ask about that because originally the two were one
0: book. yeah, it was supposed right? to, it, I initially thought it would be one book, yeah, okay. And then I just realized the length of it was more than what anybody's gonna publish on for a first time <laughs> writer, unless you're like, you know, Brilliant, and I'm not claiming to be brilliant. So I just wanted to write a publishable book at the, right. at, the at the at the time, and so I was satisfied to, to end it there, and then have book two follow along. So line. did
1: that shape the story at all? Did the story change because it needed to end so. in a first book? Okay. I
0: don't think so. Um, no. I mean, I always knew. Well, I don't know. Like when I I remember when I was writing it, and I got to that point. Um, I was kind of surprised that. There was so much story left, and I was already here back at Ebenezer. Right. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to end well now. It can't. Because hmm. there's a whole lot of stuff that still has to be worked out. So it's not like I outlined the whole thing in advance and knew you know, where all the beats were going to be. You know, I just kind of arrived at it and thought, oh, that's what this is going to look like now. So I need to end this book, and then the, the, the sequel will complete the book. Right. If that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. And I... Absolutely, hear what you're saying. As far as the story doesn't end there, so right. it seems odd to end at the end of Fiddler's Gun because right, it's it's only in the middle maybe of the story. It's almost yeah. like an intermission, yeah, uh, to move into into the next part. On that note, of things couldn't end well there. This is, this is more of a of just a personal pain, but is that why you had to kill Tan?
0: Um, I think I needed to kill Tan because something I, I needed something to motivate Finn's murder of Tiberius. Mm. Um, I didn't think that would ring true unless she was really moved to it and she had to be moved by emotion and, and seeing her friend killed is what does that because you know the reader needs to be there with her right And I don't think that happens unless you lose somebody. And initially I thought it would be nut.
1: Right. Um, it, it leads up like it's going to be
0: that. Right. And then I just thought it would be the more interesting choice, you know, to go the other direction and leave Nut around a while longer. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And I also felt like Tan, I had, I, I had done everything I was interested in doing with Tan. Like, he has his sort of development when you learn the backstory of the rattlesnake and all that. Right. And his friendship with Tommy Nuttall and, and that kind of thing. But then, like, in my mind, his character... There There's no place else for it that his character was ever going to go. Right. I knew I wasn't interested in any kind of romance between him and Finn, mm-hmm. even though I know a lot of people thought that that might be Really, yeah. I'm so
1: glad that you didn't take that trajectory yeah. with so many th- things, because that, that very aspect of so many people, as right. you're saying, suge- suggest or expected that. I love that there are these real friendships between... Right. Finn and all of these men in her life like mm-hmm. Jack Wagon, who is one of my favorite characters um, that that's never even a thought in anybody's mind.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it certainly wasn't in mine and so I was fighting against it sometimes in the writing gotcha, to make sure that I wasn't leading people there but yeah, I just think when I got to the point in the book, I, I just I, I wasn't interested in Tan anymore. And I think when you're not interested in a character anymore, you probably need to find a way to get rid of them. Because <laughs> if the writer's not interested, neither is anybody else. So
1: Okay. Well,
0: maybe that's not fair in your case. <laughs> you killed off my favorite character. I'm
2: sorry. No,
1: it definitely had the effect that you were going for of the reader being there with... Finn if, right. of you know and feeling the necessity of the action, so I love it. I just hate it at the same time.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, no, you're not. Don't lie. It's <laughs> I'm fine. really not that sorry. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um.
1: So one of the things that this kind of I think connects back to the theme of of adventure and violence and that whole representation of Armand, um, but also just kind of to the way that people are represented on on the ship and how and how that whole thing functions i've been curious what part your military experience played in right. the construction of this book and whether and how much that fed into it do you want to tell well, me about that yeah,
0: it goes back to what we were talking about with the orphans even write what you know hmm. right so this uh i was writing this book having just come out of you know six years in the marine corps uh, much of which was spent on ships. Mm. So, you know, I was in the Mediterranean for six or eight months, you know, living on a ship around sailors. And, you know, you know. so it was all, the, all the, the language is all very familiar to me. You know, I know how to talk about being on a boat. I know how to talk about that kind of stuff. And in the intervening time, I'd learned, you know, shipbuilding and sailing of small ships and that kind of things. So, you know, it was easy for me to be able to write about something that I knew again, which mm. is, you know, I think always a safe place to start when you're writing uh so yeah it all developed out of that and you know one of my favorite parts of the of the first book is the scene in Tun tavern philadelphia Mm -hmm. uh, which is you know they they make a port a port uh, they stop the ship goes to port in, in philadelphia and finn and her friends end up in this place called Tun tavern where captain robert mullen comes in and announces the formation of a continental uh corps of marines right which historically uh the marine corps was founded uh, in 1775 november 10th in tun tavern philadelphia by robert mullen who walked into a bar and said who's who wants to sign up you know and that's where the marine corps started which is so um if you've been in the marine corps it's so appropriate <laughs> that it, w- it would start in a bar and of course i've always kind of imagined that that somehow you know, mystically would have led to a bar brawl. Yes. You know, so I was, I was, it was just pure delight to be able to recreate that in the context of this story. And interestingly enough, uh, spoiler alert, alert, alert that uh, you know, uh, Fred and Ned leave the crew of the of the rattlesnake at that point and join the Continental Marines. Right. And that was just for fun for me. I was just like, oh yeah, send some of them off to join the Marines. And I didn't realize until I was writing the final ship battle at the end that was like, Oh, that's they're why they're, <laughs> they're coming back <laughs> And so it was a total surprise to me. I didn't I didn't plan that at all and it was just delightful. It's one of the mysteries of writing, I think, mm-hmm. is uh, just see being open enough to the story that the story can be in command of itself in some way. Absolutely. Um because if any writer tells you that they know everything that's going on all the time, they're lying. I'm sorry. I just don't believe it. <laughs> um, it's a mystical act and that I can't explain. So yeah, I planted those seeds early in the book and then it came, comes back around at the end and uh, I was really happy with how all that worked out.
1: That reminds me of a of a quote that, and of course I'm not going to be able to attribute it to, to the author who said it because I can't remember, but um, someone said, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader.
0: Yeah, for real.
1: And I love that that aspect of this surprised you and therefore surprised the people who are reading the book. Because when the O'Malley Brothers came back, (laughs) delight was the correct word for that. I was so (laughs) delighted. I was like, yes, the O'Malley Brothers. This is all I wanted. And I'm very good. good. It's it's very cool that you got to experience that same surprise and delight that your readers do. That is kind of a magical thing. Yeah, it's part of the
0: fun of writing. Like, if writing was just work, I don't know that I would do it. But, yeah. like, writing surprises me all the time with, like, oh, man, look what's going to happen now. I didn't even think of that. And, you know, it doesn't always work. And it, it, to be realistic, uh, when you're writing, you will have those moments when you're like, oh, now I understand all this comes together. But then, you know, you go into the editorial process, and you go back, and you work all that stuff into the earlier in the book, so it's all properly foreshadowed and all that. Mm. So it doesn't come out fully formed the first time. But uh, the ideas form the first time usually and then you spend the whole editorial process massaging everything so that it seemed like it was supposed to be there all the time, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. That's
1: that second muse aspect that we yeah. that we talked about. Yeah.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: So did your military experience other than logistically feed into the book thematically as far as that that whole arc of um violence yeah, and enjoyment know. of
0: adventure goes that's a good question um i think a lot of that theme the theme of you know the what is uh, our relationship to violence do to us internally mm-hmm. a lot of that i think is just some of the, my own stuff hmm. um because you know as a young man being in the Marine Corps, you're surviving, so you're surrounded all the time by this kind of macho culture right. that just loves punching and shooting, <laughs> and uh, and of course, I was enjoying all the movies at the time, you know, right. that most you know people do, which are just incredibly violent, and I've always wrestled with that, like I've always wrestled with like what is appropriate here. What is healthy? What is not? I mean, like there are some movies that are incredibly violent that I unabashedly adore, but those tend to be movies that have something to say about it in the end.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, You know, I'm thinking about something like uh, Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick about uh, the Battle of Guadalcanal. Uh, I think that's the battle it's about. But uh, it's a World War II movie, really violent, hard to watch, but like, it's ultimately about violence. Like, it's having some, It has something to say about violence. Whereas there are movies that I will walk out of um, and have walked out of that are violent just for violence sake because glorify. they kind of glorify mm-hmm. in like, the coolness of it. Mm-hmm. And that's something I have very little patience for. Mm-hmm. Like if something is trying to make violence seem fun and cool, like, you better have a good reason for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm guilty, on the other hand, because I could argue that superhero movies are remarkably violent and remarkably cool. Mm-hmm. And they certainly are. But um, um I, I do think they have more to say than just, let's punch everybody. Right. Which is why I stick with them. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I was working through a lot of that stuff in this book, just trying to figure out what I thought about
2: it.
1: Yeah. I think that that really shows through in the story, because... If there if there's one way that I would encapsulate kind of uh, how that comes through is tension. That's the word that I would use because,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, the my favorite books, the ones that I that stick with me and that I appreciate the most are those that present a question and mm-hmm. don't necessarily give you a hard answer for it. Right. Um, and I really appreciated Finn's Revolution and Fiddler's Gun specifically for that purpose because there is this tension between you know because sometimes uh as they they're getting into their pirating the crew really is enjoying it and they're Mm -hmm. they're excited and they're having fun and um, and you can get swept up in that but you also are feeling that internal tension that yeah that finn herself is feeling and sees in armand externally um and there's also the
0: sense in which you want the reader to be swept up in it because that's what then convicts the reader like I need to make you enjoy it, so that then you can feel the conviction of being like, oh, maybe I shouldn't enjoy this.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But the presenting, like you're saying, of that question is is exactly what that is. It's just, right. hey, should you think yeah. about this? Should you enjoy this? And I love that it's just left there for to hang right. there for the reader to to take and do.
0: Yeah. Well, with I it think they will. like, I mean, good stories do not necessarily give answers. Hmm. I think a great story gives a good question, Mm -hmm. and then instead of of giving you an answer, it gives you a set of characters and problems, Mm -hmm. and lets you draw your own conclusions. Um, And, you know, I have my own answers, but I'm not going to give them to you. And I've been accused of being too evasive in these books, even. Mm. I know there are some people who have not understood that uh, conclusions are arrived at. Right. They've been left like, oh, well. In the end, there was nothing but violence here. I'm like, well, no, I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> I really, I Having read
1: them, I don't think that's true at all either.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that, that's that's uh, indicative of the fact that in a lot of storytelling, people do expect answers to be right. given to them. Right. And like, that is not something that I'm interested in doing. Like, read the story and let, and you draw you draw your own conclusions from the from the. Uh, actions of the characters right. and how they played out, Right, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely, it does make sense, which is one of the reasons that I love the series so much, is it makes y- us as the reader struggle through those questions and not just hands us an answer. And I think that you learn more from a story, which is one of the beautiful things about stories, yeah. is that ability to learn from experiences that you haven't partaken in physically right. yourself. Um, And you learn more from those when you have to struggle through the thought and the question and the answer on your own. So I love that aspect of it. So we've talked a little bit about where the sailing aspect came from and where the orphanage and Finn as a character came from. Um, As far as the whole concept of Pirates or privateers or whatever you you want to call them in this mm-hmm. time frame. How historically accurate yeah. is that?
0: Well, okay, so this is g- fascinating to me I didn't know at the time that I started writing it, it was like oh man revolutionary war and then we should have pirates and then You know in the writing process. It was like wait a minute. Were there pirates right? During- That's not
1: the first thing that springs <laughs> to mind when people say <laughs> right, Revolutionary
0: <Exactly>. War <laughs> But I will say that from being in the Marine Corps like one of the kind of famed uh, Marine Corps pieces of history is that uh, the Marines raided Tripoli In uh, the early, I think, nineteenth century, and and kind of wiped out the Barbary pirates. It was the Barbary Mm -hmm. pirates wars, and uh, that's like this fascinating corner of history that most people have never heard of. Uh, And it fascinatingly like during er, the, the early years of the American government, like a third of the national debt was going toward paying off pirates. Wow. It was some insane amount of money that we were paying just for, to keep pirates from stealing our stuff. And so eventually, I think it was Thomas Jefferson sent the Marines, he's like, go over there and take care of this problem. And they went and stomped it dead. Wow. Um, so anyway, that got me all excited and looking into the issue. So I ended up reading a lot. Most of my research came from a book called The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. Which is this fantastic read, Uh, it's an academic work, um, that's full of original source, um, kind of uh, uh, facts and articles and stuff from people who were there and lived it, uh, specifically in the American uh, context, and like what life at sea was about, and their entire chapters dedicated to piracy, and like how that worked. And interestingly, piracy was uh, one of the earliest forms of American uh, democracy uh before How so? before you know the the revolution had happened like you had these pirates that would take over their own ship they would mutiny and kick the cap- captain out and and then they would decide what they were going to do by vote so they would run their ship oh. democratically because you know they all wanted to have a hand in what they were doing and so you know That's not necessarily a great basis of government in in that specific context, but you know, and I'm not suggesting either that that pirates gave rise to American democracy. That's not true either. But it is interesting that those two things were going on in the same basic time periods. Right. So yeah, we are at the golden age, or at the end of the golden age of piracy when we get to the American Revolution. There's not, you know, the big, rich Spanish galleons sailing around the Caribbean anymore. That kind of stuff is kind of all gone. So piracy has in some ways become a thing of the past. Mm. But... During the American Revolution, uh, absolutely, one of the things that the, the, the both the British and the Americans were doing was issuing Letters of Mark,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: is a letter, you, you basically make it legal for any ship to be a pirate as long as you only attack the other guy. Right. You know, so both sides were doing this. So there was this kind of vibrant pirate culture that was happening at the time. So anyway, I just got fascinated by all that and reading about how the washes on ship work and... Uh, the, the round robin, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is mentioned in the show in, in the book, is, is a real thing. That's right. one of the real ways in which uh, you know pirate crews agreed on what they were going to do and how they were going to hold people accountable. Right. And so all that came out of my my research and reading of *The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea*, which I highly recommend to anybody that's that's a fan of that kind of stuff. So it, you know, all that to say that. You know, it was just kind of fascinating to be able to pick these little bits of real history mm-hmm. and put them together in ways that most people have never seen before. Right. You know, it's interesting that there, you're, I, I'll hear criticism sometimes in reviews or whatever saying, oh, this book's about pirates, but it's during the American Revolution, and piracy was long over by then. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's not true at all. Like, <laughs> That's I <know> not actually <laughs> that's fact. That's <laughs> not even remotely <laughs> fact, you know? And to be, to be fair, I honestly thought uh, early on in the writing that Finn Button... And her pirate crew, uh, which involved the marines, as we talked about, right. would end up being a part of that marine raid on Tripoli.
2: Oh. Um, but
0: the timelines didn't work out, and right. we can talk more about that
2: after we've next, read Fiddler's In marine, the next session, yes. Because
0: Tripoli does show up, as you know.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and that's why, you know.
1: That's one of the things that I appreciate so much about... Um, Historical fiction in general, and especially about these books, because without reading them, I wouldn't—I've would never have known mm-hmm. about the Georgia War Woman. I wouldn't know that piracy was still a
0: thing during the Revolutionary War, or how I mean, it was, or how it was used. Piracy is still a thing today, <laughs> which is crazy. It is. I've been attacked by pirates.
1: What? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait! I need to know about this. Wait, okay. when, <laughs> this is a story that has to come out.
0: So uh, I was on ship. Uh when I was in Marine Corps, we were on a ship um in the Philippine Sea. I think it was the Philippine Sea. And one night, uh, in the middle of the night, it was just like we heard this rat-a-tat-tat-tat along the hull, and the general quarters sounded and we launched our helicopters and everything to go, you know, some serious stuff was going on. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was like a it was a pirate ship that had just come across upon our boat in the dark and fired at it. So it, it, And we launched these helicopters to go blow them out of the water. Which they did not. Like, it all worked out peacefully, it wasn't a big deal, it was a misunderstanding. But it's like, that's a real thing that still happens in the world. Like, pirates just show up in the night and shoot at you. That is incredible! <laughs> because
1: it really is this ancient, this, what we conceive as this ancient concept that yeah. no longer applies to today. Yeah, but. and
0: I, I think it's actually growing right now in North Africa, again, oh. in the Mediterranean. Like, it, piracy is a real problem. Wow!
1: That <laughs> see, you learn so much. This is what I, what I love about because because I know that you've said before that um people can sometimes be critical of the historical inaccuracies right. in the series. But when you have things like this that that beckon you into a story, that invite you into a story, um, through that you can learn things you would never have yeah, learned before that are yeah. real and factual. Right. Um, so I think I'm, we
0: talked about this before. Like, I did not set out to write historical fiction. Like, I mm-hmm. call it historical adventure. And yes. I I am not interested in exactly recreating facts and timelines and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. I'm interested in the flavor,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: I don't want to play really fast and loose and just make stuff up. You know, I'm not going to have knights show up, or am I? <laughs>
1: <laughs> or am I?
0: <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to stretch it too far, but. Um, I do like to just draw on things, kind of blow on am- embers, so mm-hmm. to speak. You know, so I don't, there's very little in the books that are plainly false.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but it's it's not what I would consider historical fiction in the sense that, you know, something like um, The Killer Angels is historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Is that even historical fiction? That's nonfiction. So, yeah, probably a bad
2: example.
1: <laughs> well, I'm really excited to take the readers and the listeners into the next section of the story because as much as I love Fiddler's Gun and it's great, Fiddler's Green is just next level and I'm really excited to get to come back together and,
0: well, and talk I'm about it. I'm terrified to start reading it. <laughs> 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 There's so many voices. Oh my gosh. I'm so
1: excited for
2: this.
0: Oh uh, you I just will really you just
1: really wrote yourself into a corner on that one. I
0: really did. I really did. I picked it up the other day and, and was flipping through it and I was just like oh my gosh, how am I going to do that? <laughs> so, we'll see. I'll figure something out. I'll be taking French lessons.
1: I'm looking <laughs> forward to it.
0: Alright, thanks, Jeanne. Thank
1: you,